0: Hey, good evening, everybody. Special welcome back to the Hassan and Kala, Mr. and Mrs. Bololo. Welcome and mazel tov. Just seeing some of the footage, it looked like it was an amazing, very Labor Day wedding. So we don't share that the line was, we're not happy for you, we're happy with you. Happy with you special thank you as always to Torah anytime for sharing this uh, this class and many others with those who are not able to be here personally topic this evening is life of tranquility sounds pretty good imagine living a life of tranquility if you were to ask any normal human being would you love to feel more serene would you love to be more peaceful I think the answer would be a resounding yes. Everybody wants it, everybody needs it, everybody speaks about how hassled they are, how busy they are. And in a way, it's almost an expression of, obviously, I'm very needed, I'm very important, because I'm doing all these things, and I'm not getting enough sleep. And the office is crazy, the family is crazy. So on one hand, we we kind of like to, to pride ourselves on how busy we are, On the other hand, we complain that we lack tranquility, we lack peacefulness, and there are so many things in life and sometimes there are so many people in life that make it difficult to be tranquil. One of the major themes of this week's Parsha is the concept of Shalom, external peace, but even more importantly, inner peace. So I'd like to take a few moments and explore what exactly is the Torah's viewpoint on inner peace and how do we achieve it? Now, obviously, the most powerful remedy of real menuches and nefesh of real peace and tranquility in life, is none other than bitacha. If we were really living with this very vivid and tangible awareness that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with us, and Hashem is taking care of me, and Hashem is loving me, and, and there's nothing that could stop Him from doing exactly what I need, when I need it, that's really the, the, the most powerful, the most direct path to tranquility in life. So obviously, bitachon is, is the, the primary, but I'd like to focus on, on a different tool, on a tool that could be helpful, even if we're still growing in our bitachon. <coughs> The Rabbah tells us that the order of the Parsha, from the beginning, the early discussion of meila of stealing, that's, uh, that's referring to communal issues, right? national problems. And then it speaks about sota, when there's a conflict in the marriage and the husband is jealous of his wife and maybe she's doing things that are inappropriate. So that's Shalom bayis. That's peace in the home. And then eventually, right after the conversation of Sota, we have the discussion of Nazir. And Nazir explains the Rabag. That's when I have internal conflict. I have turmoil. And I want to take on this oath of Nazirus to somehow quiet that inner noise. So we start off with national issues of peace and trying to avoid me'ila and geneva stealing and being, being dishonest. Then we get to shalom bias between man and wife. And then we get to oneself. So explains the realm the reason for this order is because what happens in the world, we talk about world peace. Well, how do you achieve world peace? How do you get there? How do you change the world? It's got to start in the bias. If we have a home that's peaceful, if we have a marriage where I respect you and I'm caring for you, and even though it's been many years, but I'm still trying to surprise you and I'm trying to express my love for you, if there's Shalom bias, there's peace in the home, that's how it could spread eventually to Shalom and the Olam, right the peace in the world. But where does Shalom bias come from? How do you have a healthy relationship between husband and wife? It's not easy. That starts right here. It starts with me. Right, so often I've had conversations with, with therapists who specialize in couples therapy, and the couples coming to, to speak about their issues, trying to get ETSA, trying to get tools, how to communicate better, right, how to feel the other person's pain, how to speak their love language, but so often it gets back to the individuals. I have my own baggage I need to work on. I have so many of my own hurdles that I need to get over. So the Rabbah says, the the order of the Parsha is teaching us peace in the world comes from peace in the home. Peace in the home comes from peace within myself. Then we have the bracha of Shalom. Berchas kohanim. Yiverechecha Hashem v'yishmerecha... Hashem should bless you and guard you, keep you safe. Hashem <speaking in Hebrew> Hashem should deal kindly with you and be gracious towards you. Hashem <speaking in Hebrew> Hashem should bestow his favor upon you, Vyaseim <speaking in Hebrew> Shalom. And he should grant you peace. The uh the explains, this is based on a chazal. Shabli <speaking in Hebrew> Shalom, because without peace. Without harmony, ein nachas bracha. There is no blessing in this world that will really bring you nachas. I can't, I can't enjoy it because I'm lacking peace. We could be so incredibly wealthy, and we've always dreamt of having that home, right? Nine million dollars by the water, and now we have it. And we always wanted that particular yacht because our other one was too small. And now we have the bigger yacht. And I make sure to go out every Sunday. But if my home is crumbling and I can't speak to to my children or my husband with, with any level of reality, with sincerity, we can't relate to each other. And I always feel misunderstood. I never feel appreciated. Then any bracha in the world means nothing. I can't get nachas from it. Yaseim l'chashalom, after the Kohanim, bless us and, and say, Hashem, please bestow all the good things upon Kal Yisrael. Physically, spiritually, Hashem allow us to see and appreciate the bracha, but that's only going to happen, v'yaseim shalom when there's peace. Now, we had something similar in Parsha's B'chukosai. In the beginning of Parshish B'chukosai, that's what the Torah tells us, we follow the Torah, we do the mitzvos, and then good things will happen, we'll have an abundance, we'll have plenty. And then Hashem says, shalom And I will bring peace into the land. And Rashi over there explains, because you might be thinking, listen, we have all this food, we have water and wine and everything is beautiful and we're protected from our enemies. What more do we need? So Hashem is telling us, there's one more thing that's crucial. I'm going to grant you peace. Because im ein shalom ein klum. If you don't have this one factor, then everything else means nothing. Ein shalom ein klum. Now what is this peace referring to? Is this talking about peace with Syria and Iraq and Iran explains the Ramban. No. It's talking about peace between brothers and sisters within the Jewish people. The bracha of Shalom we have in the beginning of Parshas B'Chukosai is Hashem is telling us you follow the Torah diligently I'm going to give you a haftacha. This is a promise. I will grant you peace. So in Parshas Naso, there's a prayer, there's a blessing for peace. But in Parshas, Bechol Hashem is promising. If we do the mitzvos and we do them well, I promise you, you're going to be b'sholom with each other. I saw in the Sefer, Ayelas HaShachar, of Ariye Leib Steinman. He was the Gadol Hador. He has a very basic, very fundamental question. I understand to give a blessing for peace. We're allowed to daven for peace. We're allowed to daven that Hashem should help us be nice to each other, right? give me the strength to, to be able to, uh, to transcend some of my limitations. But how in the world, philosophically, does it make sense for Hashem to say, if you do all the mitzvos, then I promise you, I'm going to give you guys peace between each other. How could you promise that, God that's based on my that's that's based on my free will (laughs) Hashem is in control of everything if Hashem wanted to promise us I will give you rain okay that makes sense you're in control of the rain I'm not I will give you crops okay that's not my area but how in the world can Hashem say I promise you're going to be pleasant and respectful and nice to each other That's hard to understand. That's one question I'd like to explore. How could Hashem promise peace? I want to explore a second question as well. This is probably one of the most difficult mitzvot to do on a daily basis. We have a prohibition in the Torah against taking revenge. So you might think, how often do I take revenge? That's like in a Clint Eastwood movie, Right? You killed my father, I'm going to get you back. Taking revenge. But we know very well that the Torah's definition of revenge doesn't mean I'm going to go smash your car window. That's something else. Revenge is, if I feel you were withholding a chesed from me, you were not treating me in the way that I deserve to be treated, you weren't showing me that love or appreciation, I'm not going to give it back to you. I'm not going to smile in the same way. I'm not going to do a chesed that I would have done. That's a Torah violation of taking revenge. And that happens every day in every single relationship. It's always tit for tat. It's so hard to rise above it. The question is, how hard is it? Right? How hard is it not to take revenge? So the Kliyukr comes along, source number seven, and he says, why is revenge so bad? What's the big deal? He says, that most of the time, we're not taking revenge for massive, destructive things. It's based on klonikai, on little things. Right? She said something that hurt my feelings, or I can't believe he was so insensitive. Things that we're going to get over. You know, Give yourself a couple of hours or a couple of days. Not the biggest deal in the world. So explains the Kleoker. If you take revenge, which means if you are now treating that person differently, so then you have no, you have no worldview. Your priorities are so off. You're going to let that bother you? You're going to l- let that one line totally devastate you? The reason explains the Klioka why taking revenge is so incredibly evil is because it means I have a warped perspective of reality. You don't have your priorities straight. And he gives the following amazing muscle. Let's say you have a little boy, right? Four years old. He's sitting there in the living room and he's building with magnetiles. You know what those are, by the way? Brilliant, right? Best invention ever. Magnetiles. And he, he's working on it for 45 minutes, and he has this beautiful spaceship that he's now created. His older brother, who's seven years old, glances and sees from across the room, wow, look at that big spaceship. I bet that would be really cool to jump on and destroy. It can make a loud noise and most likely, David's gonna scream, I'm in, right? Without thinking more than that, it all seems to make sense. (laughs) He goes and he destroys the magnetile spaceship and David is screaming. At that point, when David is so extremely mad, he turns to his father and says, Kill him! Kill him! Should the father kill the older son? Interesting moral dilemma, right? Should the father kill the older son? So, uh, the Abba or the Tati or the Dad, or the Papa, he would say, that uh, that was not okay, and he'll give him some good rebuke maybe send him to his room, whatever you do for discipline. But he's probably not going to kill his older child. In the little boy's perception, though, my brother is deserving of capital punishment because he destroyed my spaceship. Even though I know myself, I would have broke it like three seconds later. Right? I had no intention of keeping it. So explains the Kliyakar, when we take revenge, we're living in the mind of a four-year-old. We're seeing the world in such a narrow way. You're really getting upset about this? Right? He did something that cost you a few bucks. Now you got to pay more? Get over it! Right? He did something that was a little bit hurtful. Okay, got to move on. The Rambam seems to echo this idea of the Kliyakr when he speaks about the prohibition against taking revenge. He says that Really, I should have no desire to get you back or to treat you any differently. You are wise. Those who get it, they realize that it's not worth it. It's not worth hating you for. It's not worth holding on to the resentment. I'll just get over it. So we have the Kliyak and the Rambam basically telling us, if you take revenge, if you don't treat the person in the same way, you're like a child. Because anyone who's an adult who has a more mature perception of life should be able to get over it. On the other hand, we have the famous passage in the Masilas Yisharim. The Ramchal says, The truth is, Ha'adam Margish Ma'od Baalbanosov. Human being feels when people make fun of him or people hurt him. Um tsargol, and naturally. I have a deep anguish, I have a deep pain. Vahanakama and taking revenge, lo masuka midvash, it's sweeter than honey. Kihi manuhaso levado. That's my only manuha. The only way to feel at ease is by getting him back. It's so hard, he says, to fight against your grain. And not to hold on to the hatred. And not to treat him or her differently. So this is only easy for the angels. They don't have the same character flaws that we have. They don't have the same limitations that we have. So it's a pretty strange thing. The Rambam and the Kliyak are telling us it's so easy, just get over it. And the Ramchal is saying it's the hardest thing in the world, unless you're an angel. So is holding yourself back difficult, or is it easy? So we have one issue we have to understand. How could Hashem promise to give us peace if that's based on our own free will? And we have the second question. seems to be a contradiction in this mitzvah or in this prohibition of taking revenge. Is it really, really hard, or is it really easy? I remember reading, this is back in, I think, 2014, the summer when missiles were flying into Israel from Gaza, and they were sending ground troops to IDF. One mother already lost one of her sons in a previous war, and she had another son now going into Gaza, and he was in a combat unit, and she had no clue if he'd come back alive or dead. So the whole time, she's, she's davening with fervor, but she has no communication, she has no idea. How is my son doing?" Eventually, after a few months, he surprises her. He didn't tell her he's coming home, just walks in the front door. His mother is there on the couch reading to says, Ima! She sees him, she's in shock. She starts screaming. She starts screaming, Matan! 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 Baruch Hashem! Baruch Hashem! Matan! Matan is home. Imagine if right then, as she's crying tears of joy and she's embracing her son, she gets a text message from someone in the office. You should just know that Cynthia went out with all of the ladies for coffee and you were not invited. How devastating would that news be? <laughs> right? How devastating would that be? That would destroy her. She could care less. Because Matan is home. Matan is home. If you picture right, a child, Lohelainu, Rachman Alitslan, who's going through chemotherapy for years, fighting cancer, and finally, finally, mother and father get a chance to walk out of the hospital having a sense of relief that he's done, he's finished. He could could go back to school, he could play in the dirt, he could be a normal kid. And at that point, someone tells the father, you should know all the promotions they were thinking of giving us, they canceled that for the entire year. How devastated is the father? The basic idea is very simple. It all depends on where I am. How much is something going to disturb me? How much is something going to, to disrupt my equilibrium that's totally dependent on where is my machshava, where is my mind? How am I viewing the world? What's my reality right now? So explains Reb Yahu Solomon Shlita, addressing the second point, this contradiction between the Kliyakr and the Mesil yesharim. He says... The Kliyakr is talking about a person who has that true perspective on life. Once you're there, once you know what life is really about, so then all the klena all the little things, all the Narish that's not going to faze me. It doesn't disturb me. I'm okay. Okay, she didn't invite me. I'll get over it. I'll still love her. The Ramchal, is talking about the person who's not yet there. Right? So many of us. We, we haven't broken free from those chains of this false reality. And the Ramchal is saying, if you really feel the insult, because you don't have that clarity yet, then it's really hard to get over. And it's really hard not to take revenge. It all depends where I am. Rabbi he was explaining the, uh, the Mishnah that says, Talmideh hachamim marbim shalom ba'olam. Torah scholars increase peace in the world. So how does that work exactly? Right, all the rabbis are going around house to house. Can I be of assistance? Right, can I help out in the marriage? Can I help out with the, with the children? How in the world are Torah scholars increasing peace? So he explains, what is shalom? What is peace? So, the opposite is peirud, is disconnection, is kapeda and kas, is, is, is getting angry and frustrated. When I'm that kind of person, when I'm in that frame of mind, then it's almost impossible for me to be bisholom with myself, and obviously to be bisholom with you. Explains Rabbi Cheska Lebramski. A Talmud Chacham, a real Torah scholar, he has a sense of satisfaction. He has a sense of sepuk, of serenity, because he's engaged in spirituality. I'm striving to come closer to Hashem through my learning. And if I therefore have peace within myself, then it's easy to be marbush shalom, to share that peace with others, because... You're not going to upset me as easily. You're not going to throw me off as easily. I'm okay. Talmidei chacham marbim shalom sholom And I think this answers our first question. Rabbi Ariel Steinman was asking, How could Hashem promise that we're going to have peace amongst ourselves? And the answer is, if we're living that life... If we have that mabata miti, we have that true vision, and therefore we have that internal sense of serenity and tranquility. Then, of course, there's going to be peace. It's not because there's a supernatural intervention; it's a direct result of living the true Torah lifestyle. I'm going to have peace within me, and then mar b'shalom Olam, That will create peace within the bias, and that will spread the, the entire world. We all know ourselves, when do we lose it? When do we really get angry? When do we really give it to somebody? It's not when we're flying high. It's not when we're feeling great about ourselves and our accomplishments. It's when the tank is almost empty, and I come home, and I'm this close to losing it. Just do something. Just do anything, (laughs) okay? Just give me an excuse to yell at you, and I'm right there. Shalom has to start within. But it's all based on, are we seeing life with the clarity of vision? What's real? What's important? And therefore, the smaller things don't bug us as much? Or are we bekatnos ha-moach? We're living in that narrow reality of tzimtzum. And therefore, everything and anything can get me started. I want to read to an article. You'll forgive me for the secular source here. (laughs) But this is by uh, David Brooks. He's a journalist. Somewhat of a famous piece. goes back to 2015. About once a month, I run across a person who radiates an inner light. These people can be in any walk of life. They seem deeply good. They listen well. They make you feel funny and valued. You often catch them looking after other people, As they do so, their laugh is musical and their manner is infused with gratitude. They are not thinking about what wonderful work they are doing. They are not thinking about themselves at all. When I meet such a person, it brightens my whole day. But I confess, I often have a sadder thought. It occurs to me that I've achieved a decent level of career success, but I have not achieved that. I have not achieved that generosity of spirit or that depth of character. It occurred to me that there are two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, honest, faithful, were you capable of deep love? We all know the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and educational systems spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. But if you live for external achievement, years pass, and the deepest, deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack a moral vocabulary. It is easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You figure as long as you are not obviously hurting anybody and people seem to like you, you must be okay. But you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. Gradually, a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self, between you and those incandescent souls you sometimes meet. I came to the conclusion that wonderful people are made, not born, that the people I admired had achieved an unfakeable, probably not a real word, but it's a great one, an unfakeable inner virtue, built slowly from civic, moral, and spiritual accomplishments. So this, this very articulate way of defining two types of achievements. You have the resume success, and then you have the eulogy success. I want to take this one step deeper, though. Resume success is something that's quantifiable. We could point to numbers. We could show other people besides ourselves, what we've done, how much we've built. And this is not just true in the business world, it's true in the Olam HaTorah, in the world of Torah. How do you know if we're doing good things when it comes to a shul, a yeshiva, a kolel, a kiruv center? So oftentimes it's easy to get caught up in the resume success, even in the world of Torah. Where these are how many people we have. This is how big the building is. Right? There are many factors you could point to that might not show you real Hatzlacha in real terms. We have in the beginning of the Parsha, the Ishes Kadoshav Lo Yiyu, Ishes Shayitein Lakohen Lo yiya. And this is a cryptic posik, it's hard to, to understand the repetition, but the basic idea is that when you give to the Kohen, that belongs to Him. And the Gemara explains that when you give, Truma, don't think you're going to be losing out, you're going to be gaining from your giving. But the Chafetz Chaim takes it one step further. He says, the way to read this Pasuk is that the Torah is telling us the only thing that actually belongs to us. What belongs to you? Kedoshim. The holy things that you do, everything else we acquire, everything else on the accomplishments of the resume, those are not really mine. They're not lasting, they're not real, they're not part of me. Only the things that I do in the spiritual realm, that defines me and those mitzvos, those belong to me. Says the Khavitz ish veish ma umma lo yisa ba malo, we might be spending years and years of our lives doing things that don't really belong to ourselves hakadusha shekayim bagufo baodo bakhayev. Only those areas of spirituality, of growth, of personal refinement, those will be with you forever and nothing else. And it gives the following analogy. You have a person who feels he has three friends. One friend, he's my best friend in the world. He would do anything for me. I rely on him for anything. And then he has a second friend. We're also pretty close. We play tennis together. We have nice conversations. And then he has a third acquaintance, somebody he knows, but he's not as close with. He gets this very scary letter from the king that the king needs to see him right away. And in the old days, that probably wasn't a good sign. That could be off with your head. So he's thinking to himself, I've got to bring a chavar with me. I've got to bring a friend. So the first choice is, my good friend. Knocks on his door. me, I need your help, buddy. I got this letter from the king. I got to be there in a few hours. Can you please go with me? And whatever he's going to accuse me of, help me. Shalami says, i tell you the truth. I have so much going on right now. I haven't mowed my lawn in a week and a half. And the laundry needs to be done. There's no way I could do it. I'm sorry, but Hatzlacha, I wish you a lot of luck. That's friend number one, his good friend. Friend number two, he says, Listen, I could walk with you to the palace to at least give you some level of encouragement, but I can't go inside. That much I can't do. Forget it, it's not going to help. Friend number three, who was more of an acquaintance, and he didn't think much of that relationship, that friend says, I hear your pain, and I feel terrible. I'm going to walk with you to the palace. I'm going to go inside. I'm going to stand next to you. And I'm going to make sure to be there on your behalf. I'll make sure to save you from that gazero. So it says the Chafetz Chaim. Friend number one, who we put so much time and effort to. That friend is, that's our career. Right? I'm going to get to that next stage. I'm going to be this level. Eventually I can be a partner. So much of our time, energy and effort and our sense of value and our, and our identity comes from that first friend. But when I leave this world, it doesn't go anywhere with me. All of that stays behind. And the nine million dollar home and the bigger yacht, I'm going to leave that to somebody else. The second friend explains the chavitz Chaim. That's family, right? Real Mishpacha. They could be malav you, they could take you to the grave, lachermei of Esrim, and they could be there to eulogize and to mourn for you, but they're not going with you. That's a journey you're taking yourself. Who's the third friend that I, I was familiar with? He was an acquaintance. Says the Chavetz Chaim, that's Torah and mitzvos. That's my engagement in the world of spirituality. All the things that I did, and I... You know, I felt I had to do it. Sometimes I had a little bit of passion. Sometimes I didn't. But I didn't didn't really feel, I didn't really believe. That was my whole life. That was my whole eternity. That's friend number three. That's going to be with you forever. That defines who you are. So how do we gain tranquility? How do we change our mindset to have that true perception of this world and what's real? It's through understanding that so much of the little things that bother us are just little things, right? Famous book, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. Happens not to be true. There are definitely some big things in life that could be major curveballs. But there are many, many small things in life that we definitely sweat too much. Tranquility doesn't mean that I'm going to live a restful existence. I'm going to be chilling that's not what we're here for. We're not here to chill. It's a good thing to do once in a while. You've got to rejuvenate. That's what the summer's for. Take some time off. But tranquility or serenity means I have this inner peace. I have Manukh and nefesh. I have a sipuk. I have a satisfaction. I'm content with who I am and what I'm doing. And that only comes through living with a vivid understanding of what life is about. Reb Nassim Svi Finkel would often speak about watching Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, right, the great Rosh Hashiva of the mirror. He said, I would watch him after Shabbos morning davening. And a lot of people, a lot of noise, you know, schmoozing and doing different things. Chaim Shmuel Levitz would always go right after davening was over. He would take a Gemara. He would sit down in his spot in the base madrash, and he would learn. And it wasn't just the Hasmada, his diligence in learning, said Rabnosin Svi Finkel, that was so impressive, but it was his character. It was his approach. There was so much and Sanefitch. There was so much noise going on around him. There were so many people schmoozing and hacking and debating. But he had this inner peace. That's the tranquility we're looking for. That tranquility only comes through a clarity. I wanted to share with you a few results of what this mindset can and will bring. First is that probably one of the, the greatest things that hold us back in any area of life is being overly concerned with, with how it looks, or with, that, with how I'm appearing to them. That could be the greatest hurdle in any real accomplishment. The Rabbah tells us that it's Ain roy hashalem Mimasha yomru kenegdo. A person shouldn't be phased by what other people are saying against them. And for sure, it shouldn't bother me if they're just not honoring me or giving me the respect that I feel I deserve. But in both cases, either if they're, they're saying things, they're speaking Lush and Hora, and I know it's not even true. I, how are these rumors spreading? And that could destroy a person if my whole sense of value is coming from what do they think of me? Or if they're not speaking negatively about me, but, but they don't know who I am. They, they don't appreciate what I have to give. Where's the thank you? Right? Where are the flowers? Come on. Says the Ralbag. Don't care about those things. Don't care. Interesting question to ask yourself. And this is in any area of Ruchnius or Gashmius. You have two options. Option number one is, you could make it so big as a lawyer, as a rabbi, as a golfer, anything else in the world. You could make it so big that hundreds of thousands of people are going to know who you are. And they're going to be talking about you like you're the next Messiah or the first Messiah. That's option number one. Right? That sounds pretty good. Okay. Option number two is I live my entire life where nobody knows my name. The exact opposite of cheers. Nobody knows my name. Nobody cares about who I am or what I think or my opinions. But I change one person's life through my interactions, through my relationship with this person. They become closer to Hashem. They embrace Torah and mitzvahs. And through that transformation, we now have generations of of Jews following in the path of Hashem. So anyone would say, oh, obviously, if I could change a life versus just having hundreds of people think I'm great but not change a life, I would obviously want to do the more meaningful thing. But your homework is think about that carefully and try to really answer that question. It's not so clear. So one result of having this, this proper worldview, who I am, what defines me, is that I'm not going to give so much value to what other people think, and I'll now be empowered to do what I feel is more meaningful. I had a conversation with somebody last night, and they were saying I heard that, you know, that there's a rumor going around about the community, something like this. And my first reaction was, like, oh my gosh, we have to, like, have to find those people and tell them it's not true. But then I realized, who cares? <laughs> you know, who cares? People are going to say whatever they're going to say. We got to be authentic. We got to be real. We got to do our thing. Kaveh al Hashem. going to track down the people who started the rumor. <laughs> right? It's an Irish guy. Who cares? Result number two is when I'm in an intense situation, and my husband says something that was totally off and totally uncalled for. And my natural reaction is to give it to him. I could respond differently. I could respond differently with that clarity. Shlomo HaMalach writes, "Manerach Yashiv Chema." A gentle response diminishes anger, and that's true in both directions. That's true for the person I'm speaking to, and that's also true, like the Ramban tells us, for ourselves. If I answer with a level of frustration in my voice, inevitably, that's going to stoke the coals of anger within me, and I'm going to become more and more angry. I'm going to lose it pretty quickly, especially if my tank is pretty low. But if I understand, I'm almost able to take that step out of this particular situation and and see it from a a broader view. I'm not trapped within my head. I'm almost the an onlooker, I'm seeing what's happening and I'm realizing this is not worth it. This would be taking revenge. The Kliyuk shouting at me, don't fall into the trap. Respond like a mensch. Stop it right now. Because if I don't, what's going to happen? It's that vicious cycle. Really, really bad and devastating machlokis comes from just not nipping in the bud early on enough. It takes gevura, it takes strength, but it takes clarity of vision to get there. The difference can be radical. We find in, in the 8th chapter of Shoftim that the tribe of Ephraim goes to Gidon and they were very upset they weren't included in the war against Midian. And Gidon with chachma, with wisdom and with discipline, he answers back, you're 100% right and, and, and you guys are much better than we are. But you were there towards the end of the battle. Right? They were like the closer. And you did everything. We did come out nothing. Thank you so much for your involvement. And I'm sorry that there wasn't more. Okay. That was the end of the conversation. With the next shofate, with the next leader of Klaal Yisrael, with Yiftach, we have a very similar thing. Again, the tribe of Ephraim goes to Yiftach. And they weren't included against the the, the war of Amon, B'nai Amon. And they say, why didn't you bring us up with you to fight the battle? Yiftach, not having that same courage, not having that same kovash as Yitzro, he answered back in an aggressive way. Why are you messing with me, he pretty much said. Why are you starting up a fight with me? We called upon you, and you didn't respond in time. So we had to take it into our own hands, and we risked our lives. You should be faking us. How did that conversation end? With 42,000 men from Ephraim slaughtered in a civil war. right? Giddon and Yiftach, both great men, but based on how to respond, based on being able to nip that, that friction in the bud and not let it explode, that could make all the difference in the world. The hardest, though, is within the bias. Right? Within the home, when our guard is down and we're more vulnerable, that's very difficult. But the, the Midrash tells us that again, based on this week's Parsha, <speaking in Hebrew> not only should I be a veteran, should I be one who's able to let things go outside the home, where there at least people will see me, But I should be a vatrin betoch bezecha within the home as well. That's when it's the most difficult. But again, it's only possible with that clarity of mind. Uh, Stephen Satloff, he was the Jewish journalist who was killed by ISIS a few years back, from here in Florida, and he was able to uh, to smuggle out a letter to his family. There was another person who was being held captive he got out he brought the letter back there was one line from that letter which is extremely moving and extremely powerful he writes to his family live your life to the fullest because everyone has two lives the second one begins when you realize you only have one how do we achieve tranquility in life how do we reach that place of inner peace it's realizing we only have one life, but it's not one lifetime. Every moment, this is the only moment I have. The way I react or respond now, the words that come out of my mouth in this interaction is the only time I'll ever have the chance to do this right. And if I fail, I've failed forever. Baruch Hashem, we believe in tshuva, but I can never get back this moment. The more we reinforce and the more we remind ourselves that the only thing that's me, my identity, my value, is the reality of my life. The mitzvos, the maizim tovim, the way I speak, the way I'm able to hold myself back from speaking. The more I realize that defines me, the greater of a human being I'll become and the more tranquility I'll infuse within my life. A good Shabbos.